Hi, I'm Eden. And I'm Nicole. Welcome to Roadside, Roadside Horror, Horror Show. Show. We are in Alabama again for Alabama Part Dose. Pretty jazz today, Eden. I have a story that I think you'll love. After all, it was made into a TV movie starring Judith Light, so you know oh it's Oh my good. God. It's so good. <laughs> I mean, you know, she kind of actually was the boss of Who's the Boss, not Tony Danza. So. I agree. Yeah. But before we get there, I did find some fun, weird state laws for you. All right. Hit me with them. All right. Here we go. Gently, though. All right. I will gently smack you about the face and neck with these amazing laws. Nice. (laughs) That's how we do it on Roadside Horror Show, guys. A gentle smacking. Now, in Alabama, you must have windshield wipers on your car. I can't imagine not having them. Why wouldn't you have them? I mean, that's a really weird modification, but okay. Yeah. In Mobile, it's illegal to spit orange peels on the sidewalk. First of all, spitting is just gross. Yeah. Second of all, like... Why are you chewing up your orange peels and spitting them out? I know. Don't you just kind of like bite the the meat of the orange off of it? Yes. That's mm. what normal people do. So that's an interesting take on eating an orange. And whenever anyone says mobile, gypsies, tramps, and thieves get stuck in my head. <laughs> just outside of mobile. <laughs> Songs gonna be stuck in my head now, too. I know. This one's kind of gross, but hilarious that it's actually a law. Boogers must not be flicked into the wind. So if you're out there taking your nose, you know, mining for, for what they call, oh, what's the best? Nose goblins. Nose goblins, yes. You're Think Ren and Stimpy. Goblins. Yes, you're mining for nose goblins. Don't flick them into the wind. Flick them downwind. All right. Well, I mean, now that I know proper booger flicking etiquette, I'm very happy. Excellent. Or you could just, you know, use a tissue like a normal human being. Exactly. Or wipe it on someone you don't like. This is interesting, and I think it could possibly take some Halloween costume ideas off of your list. It's illegal to impersonate a priest in Alabama. All right. So keep that collar at home. Damn, that was this year's Halloween costume for my party (laughs) in Alabama. It's also illegal to wear a fake mustache in church because people could laugh at it. And that's not okay in the house of God. What? I don't know. That's just the law. I don't understand at all. Okay. I like this one. In Mobile, it's illegal to spray silly string. Dun, dun, dun. Okay. Well, you know, my friend actually got her car silly stringed when we were in college. Oh, that's the worst. And like it started eating through like some of her paint. Her car was already like a, I think it was a Geo Prism. It might have been a Geo Metro. <laughs> Didn't have a lot going but for it But it was, to begin yeah, with. already pretty sad. So. <laughs> in Montgomery, it's illegal to open an umbrella on the street. Okay. Well, if it's raining, I'm going to open that umbrella anyway. So I think the law might be a little moot because it was originally put into place because they thought umbrellas would scare horses. Oh, so well, as long as you're not near a horse, I'm sure you'd be fine. Yeah, I think we're good on that one. This is kind of odd. And I wonder how it plays out in today's current climate. It's illegal to wear a mask in public in Alabama. Well, I think COVID pretty much squashed that. Yep. I think it's been superseded. This is so weird. Wasn't there an other state where it was illegal to put ice cream cones in your back pocket? Yes, that was... Oh, I just listened to the episode again, too. Was it one of the Carolinas? I think it was one of the Carolinas. It was definitely still in the South. That's so... How is this a thing, guys? I don't... Like, who puts an ice cream cone in their back pocket? Folks from the South, let us know. Like, was there, like, a rash of, like, ice cream pocketing, like, at some point? What is going on? (laughs) So odd. In Lee County, it's illegal to sell peanuts after sundown on Wednesdays. Only on Wednesdays. Only on Wednesdays. Really weird. (laughs) Alabama, you have the weirdest laws by far so far. Yeah, for sure. This is also very bizarre. It's legal to drive down a one-way street the wrong way as long as you have a lantern attached to the front of your vehicle. All right. So I'll make sure to keep that lantern handy just Mm -hmm. in case I make any mistakes because I have gone down the wrong way on a one-way street before. I I live on a one-way street and I see it constantly. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's terrible. My parents live next to a one-way street and we constantly see people coming up the hill when down the hill is the only way you should be going. And my mom, (laughs) when sitting out on the porch, yells at them all the time. Well, I mean, good for her. She's keeping the neighborhood safe. Yeah. (laughs) It's illegal for someone to drive while blindfolded. Uh, that's a good law, that's actually. That's a good law. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> kind of sad that it has to be a law, but it's a good law. No argument from me. Ooh, this is fun. In Aniston, which is where my story takes place, 
it's illegal to wear blue jeans while walking down Noble Street. Oh. I'm not sure why. I don't know why either. But avoid Noble Street, guys. Or if you're there, avoid blue jeans. This law is just disturbing. Incestuous marriages are legitimate in Alabama. Uh, it's the same thing in New Jersey. Really? Yeah. There's no like... You didn't hear about that like a few years no, back? you can like marry your brother or sister? This... Um, I think the story goes that like this girl was like adopted and then she connected with this guy on like Facebook or a dating site or something mm-hmm. and fell in love with him. And it turned out that he was her father. Oh, this does sound familiar. And then they ended up going to New Jersey to get married because it was legal there. That's crazy. Uh, in case marrying your brother husband doesn't work out. In the case of divorce, women are entitled to keep all of the property they own before the marriage. However, men are not entitled to the same right. That's fucked up. Yes, it is. Yes, it <laughs> is. I mean, I guess that makes sense if you think about like an old-timey yeah, dowry situation. That's true. And that's probably where it's from. I don't know. I think that everyone should be able to keep whatever they had before the marriage because that's not joint property. I didn't buy it with you. I'm not splitting it with you. And that's what a prenup's for, baby. Exactly. But that's the the weird, wonderful legal world in Alabama. That was batshit. wow alabama congratulations you've won the contest of weirdest laws i think i know you're currently ranked number one for weirdest laws yeah i mean we'll go back and reevaluate when we get through all 50 states but for now you're in the lead buddy Mm -hmm. excellent job speaking of absolute fucking weirdness you have a story i have a story for you as i already mentioned it's so weird that they made a Judith Light TV movie about it. Nice. Was this by any chance on the Lifetime Movie Network? I don't know. It just had a made-for-TV movie in 1991, and its title was Wife, Mother, Murderer. Oh, nice. See, I just feel that between Judith Light and Tori Spelling, they're in every Lifetime movie. <laughs> I mean, that's fine. That's fine by me. <laughs> I enjoy that. I think that's where Tori Spelling belongs. So I appreciate her acting work in that. It's better than her jewelry line. That's true. So we're heading to Anniston, Alabama. It's located in the foothills of the southern Blue Ridge of the Appalachian Mountains in northeastern Alabama. Anniston is the county seat of Calhoun County, and the current population is somewhere near 22,000 people. Okay, nice. The city has a kind of unusual founding history. It was actually founded in 1872 as a private playing community for the Woodstock Iron Company. All right. The Woodstock Iron Company wanted to take advantage of all the rich mineral deposits in the area. So they were like, hey, let's build like the perfect town that'll be industrially productive, but also conservative Christian. All right. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, during the planning phase, it was originally called Woodstock after the company. But then they renamed it to Annie's Town in honor of the daughter-in-law of one of the company's founder. Then in 1873, when the town was officially chartered, they chose the name Anniston. All right, because they love Jennifer Aniston before she was even born. I know. <laughs> I was like, is this like a relative of Jennifer Aniston that founded the town? And it wasn't. So I was kind of a little sad. Who is it that's related to Jennifer Aniston that's like on like the news or something? I don't know, but I feel like she does have like... She has like a famous relative. Yeah. Yeah. I can't remember though. Oh, her dad. He was on Days of Our Lives. Oh, I kind of... Was he like the older guy? Yeah, uh, something Kyriakis. Okay, okay. Back during the good old days of... uh, Soap operas. Yeah, Days of Our Lives, and it was like batshit crazy all the time. I mean, I think it probably (laughs) still is batshit crazy, but just not as fun. So people had previously settled in the area that became Anniston in the early 19th century, but it really wasn't until the Woodstock Iron Company set up this modern, you know, for its time city with easy railroad connections that there was any economy to speak of okay and they basically manufactured iron steel and clay pipes that was like the big economic drivers in the 1870s why are all your alabama stories having to deal with iron and steel because that's like a really popular mineral deposit there i guess it's one of the largest ones within the country and they have everything you need there to make iron and smelt it and stuff so Uh, you know he who smelt it dealt it so i have heard that so the city planners touted aniston as a mountain health resort town as well okay like come on out from the big city and get some fresh mountain air get healthy get healthy so through the 1880s and 1890s several hotels schools and colleges all opened up in aniston by the early 20th century aniston had gained the nickname the model city 
for its well-planned layout and steady growth as a commercial and manufacturing hub. During World War I and World War II, the U.S. Army established Fort McClellan and the Anniston Army Depot near the city, basically kind of adjacent to it. Okay. Creating an additional population influx and some more economic growth, which is kind of awesome. Yeah. However, the second half of the 20th century was far from a fairy tale for Anniston. The city struggled with several civil rights clashes and the economy began to decline as manufacturing plants closed and relocated overseas. Wow. So, I mean, it's a little bit like today. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit. Uh, The city was also hit with a environmental catastrophe decades in the making. So one of the plants that closed down was a plant owned by Monsanto. They owned it from 1929 to 1971. They're the ones that own like everything, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Roundup and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. So at the Monsanto plant, they produced PCBs. Have you ever heard of those? PCBs. I don't know. They're this chemical. It's pretty toxic, but it's used in a lot of electrical insulation, coolant fluids for like refrigerators, carbonless copy paper, and like any kind of heat transfer fluid. So it's used for like insulation and electronics. Okay. And it's also highly toxic. All right. Um, It's really bad if you eat it. Like if you are exposed to it like in the air, on your skin, like you'll get a rash sometimes. So anything from Monsanto is just... It can be. They, I mean, they work, with, they work with a lot of chemicals and they're really bad about handling them properly. Apparently. So this plant that was at Aniston basically would dump its leftover chemicals into a local body of water. It's called Snow Creek. Because that's always a good idea. It's always a good idea. And it's kind of horrific. So. Oh, shit. I know what story you're telling. Maybe you do. Oh, okay. Yeah. Continue, please. <laughs> So I even found like an internal document from the plant um, about two years before it closed. So in 1969, and they figured out that they were probably dumping around 250 pounds of PBC per day into the Snowy Creek. So that was horrible. It's poison. Everyone's drinking water, guys. Yep. yep. Uh, Even after Monsanto closed the plant, the chemicals continued to like seep into like the ground and the groundwater at the town. While I didn't see that the plant was listed on the EPA's like national priority list of like super highly contaminated top priority sites to clean up, yeah, I did find out that the EPA has taken action to clean up Aniston. Uh, most of the cleanup activities were completed in 2018, so it took them quite a long time. Holy crap, yeah. yeah. And this really didn't come to light until like the, the 90s. So oh it took them God. like almost like 30 years to clean up this mess. That's insane. Um, there's still restrictions in the area. Like they say if you go fishing, any any of the local rivers that connect to Snow Creek, that you should not eat the fish or anything or drink the water. Uh, and that's going to be in place probably through the 2020s. Um, starting in 2020, they're going to conduct investigations to see how effective the cleanup was and if the EPA needs to come back and do additional work. Yeah. So you have... You know, 50 plus years of toxic dumping that heavily impacts Aniston. Residents who live there suffer from a much higher rate of cancers, headaches, and respiratory disease and distress that's way above the national average. My God. In the late 90s, as I mentioned, when this came to light, over 20,000 Aniston residents sued Monsanto in a class action lawsuit. Which they should. Mm-hmm. And they did settle out of court for $600 million in 2003. Uh, 2003 was also a pretty awful year, even though they had gotten that settlement from Monsanto. That was the year that the U.S. Army announced that it would start destroying the chemical weapon stockpile that it had kept at Aniston Army Base since the 1960s. Oh, joy. Mm-hmm. Over the next 10 years, the U.S. Army incinerated upwards of 2,000 tons of chemical weapons, including sarin and mustard gas. Oh, my God. No. Yep. And then they closed the base because they couldn't use it anymore because it was too toxic and decommissioned it in 2014. God. So Aniston has had the worst luck environmentally. Yeah, apparently. Given this incredibly toxic natural environment around Aniston, it wasn't that surprising when resident Frank Hilly quickly grew sick with what doctors thought was hepatitis. Now, Frank Hilly had lived in Aniston for a long time and even worked at a local foundry that used harsh chemicals every day. So when Frank died in 1975, no one suspected that the real toxic element in his life may have actually been his wife of 24 years. Oh. Marie. Oh, God. We have another fucking poisoner. You know how I roll, Eden. I know. I should just learn to expect it. <laughs> it's a poisoner in a poison town. Come on. How could I say no? 
poisoner in a poison town that uh, actually might be our episode title poison girl in a poisonous town <laughs> was that pet shop boys yes. <laughs> nice so this is the story of audrey marie hilly aka the black widow of aniston nice okay I thought this was going to be a different story because there was something that I read that like people's skin was like turning colors from all the pollution and all this stuff. I didn't come across that. I just came across like really rampant skin rashes and like lots of cancers and stuff. Like pe- it's really common for people to get diagnosed with cancer. And okay. So yeah, I thought this was a different story then. Okay. Continue. I did come across actually coincidentally another serial killer from Aniston. Oh really? Another woman. So I was like, that might be a good good one. Oh my God. She was from there, but she didn't do her killing there. So I might save that for another episode. Still stay the hell away from Aniston. <laughs> this town is just not good, guys. It's cursed. If you live there, move out right now. Get out. I will raise money for you to move. Just please <laughs> get out. So Marie Hilly was born Audrey Marie Fraser in nearby Blue Mountain on June 4th, 1933. Blue Mountain is a hard scrabble Appalachian town where almost everybody worked at the local textile mills, including Marie's parents. Now her parents, Huey and Lucille, Both worked full-time at the textile mill in town. While it was the Great Depression, the family realized they needed both incomes to survive, so they pretty much stashed baby Marie with relatives so they could work as many shifts as possible. To make up for their absence, they absolutely spoiled their daughter. Okay. She got her way pretty much no matter what, and if you told her no or corrected her in even a slight way, you might run the risk of, like, a meltdown temper tantrum. Oh, great. So she's a spoiled little brat. Mm Mm-hmm. Her parents also made it even worse by ensuring that Marie had the very best clothing and toys they could afford. They weren't the total best, but they were way better than most other kids had in Blue Mountain. Okay. Early on, the Frasers recognized that their daughter was quite intelligent and could be charming when she wanted to be. And they were determined that she would have a better life than their life as mill workers. So in 1945, they moved to Anniston and enrolled Marie in Quintard Junior High, one of the most affluent schools in the city. Ooh, fancy. Mm-hmm. Pretty and smart, Marie quickly made friends and excelled in their studies. Her social and academic success continued into high school. During high school, she began to date a boy a few years older than her, Frank Hilly. Okay. Now, Frank was from a close-knit Aniston family. He was really close to his two sisters, Frida and Jewel. A lot of people describe Frank as loyal and reliable, and that sometimes he could be a little hot-headed. Either way, we do know that Frank was absolutely smitten by the temperamental Marie and did everything he could to make sure that she felt like she was treated like a queen. Frank joined the Navy after high school and was stationed in Guam. While he was there, he missed Marie desperately and was also kind of nervous that she might dump him because of the long distance relationship thing. Yeah. So the next time he was home on leave, he proposed and the two were married in 1951. Marie finished high school and then she joined Frank in his new assignment in Long Beach, California. After another year, Frank was discharged, and the couple found out they were expecting their first child. So they moved on back to Anniston in 1952, where Frank got a job in the shipping department of Standard Foundry, and Marie found work as a secretary. In November 1952, Marie gave birth to their son, Michael. Now, the Hillies' life sounds similar to a lot of other young couples in the 50s, pretty idyllic. Yeah. But there were problems. And the roots of these problems that would continue to plague their life together had already started to grow so i already mentioned how marie kind of got spoiled by her parents yes well sometimes when a spoiled kid grows up they become a spoiled person um well yeah that's pretty normal pretty Mm -hmm. par for the course and they always want the best of everything in life yes and that's pretty much marie oh great she presented this like super sophisticated persona to the world as sophisticated as one can be in a small town in alabama okay and she dressed really elegantly in the best clothes she could find and always took pride in her good looks so she was like that lady who always had like the beautiful like you know outfit on with her hair done perfect face of makeup okay um and looking good as we very, all know very high maintenance mm-hmm. very high ma- high maintenance is the perfect way to describe marie yeah. for sure and we all know looking good ain't cheap Mm-mm. never is and marie was definitely a spendthrift she pretty much burnt through all the money that frank sent her oh god when he was in the navy now that the couple had a baby and a new house to furnish, Frank could barely keep up with Marie's spending and the household bills at the same time. Great. So even though she had a job, they were still kind of behind on bills and Frank would take extra shifts at the foundry. Yeah. Now, Marie's spending habits led to arguments between them pretty frequently, as you can imagine. Yeah, I would assume. 
But it got to the point where Frank would just give in and go along with whatever Marie wanted because he loved her and he couldn't deal with the constant fighting because she would always win. Okay, first mistake there. Just leave. Just no, mm-hmm. just don't do it. When someone's like argues to the point where like you just give up, that's a really bad sign. Yes. Marriage is about compromise. Mm-hmm. I know that sounds very trite because it's been said a million times before, but it's the truth. It totally is. It's not always easy, but you can do it. Exactly. When you find that your compromises are very one-sided, that means they're not compromises at all. And yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, They had a daughter, Carol, in 1960, and Frank was promoted to a foreman at Standard Foundry. Marie, meanwhile, built a career as an excellent executive assistant, although she tended to move from job to job around Aniston. Okay. She told friends that that was because other employees would gang up on her because she was doing such a good job and eventually force her out. At each, nice. Yeah. At each job, her coworkers found Marie judgmental and catty and snobby with a tendency to pull power trips and sabotage other people. And that's that's more what I was thinking. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But of course, she was sweet as fucking pie to her bosses and would always be, oh, yes, Mr. So-and-so. Of course, you're right, Mr. So-and-so. Yes. And each time she left the job, she got glowing reviews from her employer because of it. <laughs> kiss ass i know it's like so like i know this woman i've worked, I've with, worked this woman. with this woman yeah <laughs> over time she ended up working for the like some of the wealthiest and most powerful men in aniston and occasionally sleeps with them for fun and extra cash on the side of course because- so she's basically a prostitute and <laughs> but she needs that cash eden well you know mom's gotta look good exactly yeah now she needed the cash so bad because even though Frank had a higher income because of his promotion and she had her own income and, you know, um, alternative income streams, shall we call it? Let's just say that. <laughs> Marie had continued to spend away like there was no tomorrow. She would shower herself and her kids with the best possessions money could buy. Now, the kids grew up with a mother who would buy them anything they wanted, but was never really there for them emotionally. Marie tended to favor her son, Mike, and never would never discipline him. One of the sources I had said that she basically allowed him to grow into a, quote, little hellion. Okay, so he's her. Mm-hmm. Great. Because we need another one running around. <laughs> and then with her daughter, Carol, who is kind of a tomboy and not the little lady that Marie wanted, she had a very abrasive relationship and would basically constantly harp on her and correct her and try to get her to act ladylike. Like, Carol, girl, I feel you on that one. Yeah. Now, luckily, Frank saw that Marie's behavior towards their daughter was really taking a toll on her daughter. So he started to cultivate a closer relationship with Carol. He would take her out for ice cream and football games, you know, just time with dad. And he hoped that it would make up for some of Marie's poor treatment. So they ended up, as Carol grew up, having a really, really close relationship. Okay. So in the Hilly family, it's like Marie and Mike on one side and Carol and Frank on the other. Okay. Now, the Hillies were also socially active in Aniston and pretty well known around town. Frank was a member of the Elks Lodge and the veteran of foreign wars, and people respected them. They thought he was a pretty stand-up guy, always dependable. Marie volunteered at the kids' school and at the family church. Most people around town knew that the polished Marie could overreact. <laughs> That's probably putting it real mildly. <laughs> I feel like she got called a bitch a lot. Yes. Um, but generally, most people just called her high-strung. Okay, well, we can go with that if you want to be really nice about it. Bless her heart. She's high-strung. <laughs> now, no one noticed that Marie's quote-unquote high-strung nature would often lead to her orchestrating trouble for folks who disagreed with her. Because she's scary. Because she's Marie. Nor did anyone notice that the neighborhood kids who went to the Hillies to play with Mike and Carol would often catch a stomach bug after they left. Oh, God. We all know where this is going. If you've ever listened to this podcast before, you'll know where this is going. You will. Now, as the years passed, the problems in Frank and Marie's marriage grew. She was often restless and couldn't sleep at night. Like she suffered from anxiety. Frank tried the best he could to comfort his wife, but she was just constantly anxious. Okay. When they would fight, she would taunt Frank. She would tell him that she would get love letters from other men in town and Frank was kind of like, okay, okay, Marie, that's, that's great. Yeah. Because he just thought she's trying to get a rise out of him. And I'm like, Frank, buddy, no. Yeah, obviously, this woman is toxic beyond toxic. Yes. Like, yeah. So toxic. Toxic lady in a toxic town. We're getting towards the 70s. They've been married for almost 20 years now. 
Marie's spending has done nothing but skyrocket. So badly, she has rented a P.O. box so that she can have bills that she doesn't want Frank to see diverted there. And also so she can take out secret loans that he doesn't know about. Oh, I should do that so I can, you know, send bills that I don't want myself to see there. (laughs) She started tabs at a bunch of local businesses in Aniston. All of them were super accommodating because, you know, she was Frank's wife and Frank's a stand-up guy and he always paid his debts on time. Poor Frank. I know, this guy. Uh, When... Marie would let those tabs come overdue. The creditors would basically start contacting Frank, being like, hey, you know, oh, Frank, no. you you always pay your bill on time, and Marie set up another account, and it's past due. What's going on? Do you, do you need help? What's happening? So by 1974, Frank discovers what he thinks is the extent of Marie's overspending in town. What he thinks is, oh, God. It wasn't. He still did not know about the P.O. box. And oh, the no. Yeah. He just knew about her running up accounts at stores. So the stress is really wearing on Frank at this time. He's, you know, a foreman. He's working as much as he can. And he starts to feel under the weather more and more frequently. Throughout most of 1974, Frank has these recurring bouts of nausea and indigestion. And they all kind of start earlier in the year when he had a stomach flu. Mike Hilly also suffered from a similar stomach flu at the same time. But his symptoms cleared up when he moved away to Atlanta to study to become a minister. I wonder why. Mm-hmm. So surprising. Then in 1975, Frank felt unwell and left work early. He arrived home to discover Marie in bed with her boss. Oh, damn. Oh, shit's closing in, Marie. Well, I mean, we knew it was coming, but... Mm-hmm. So Frank, of course, was heartbroken because he still very much loved Marie. And he didn't know what to do, so he called his son, Mike, who is now, at this point, a newly ordained minister, and asked him for advice about how to solve this infidelity in, in their marriage and what he could do since Mike was so close to his mother. Mike returns to Anison briefly in early May 1973, but when he left, Frank's health suddenly takes a drastic turn for the worse, and he goes to his doctor. His doctor starts treating him for what he thinks is a stomach ulcer. And Mike actually turned out to be a decent guy? Eventually. Okay. It's, like, questionable. Okay. Like, he's still kind of always on his mom's side. Yeah, well, I had high hopes, but... But he is a minister and like he seems to be, you know, trying to walk the right path. That's good, at least. By late May of 1975, Frank is in dire straits. He visits his sister, Frida, who says later that he was, quote, sicker than he'd ever been and feared that he would die, end quote. He also told her that per the doctor's orders, he had started a new injectable medication that Marie helped administer to him daily. That's smart. Great. Yep. Yep. Very early in the morning hours of May 23rd, 1975. Marie found Frank dazed and wandering around their front yard in just his underwear. Oh, God. That's happened to me a few times, but, you know. (laughs) I like to call it an underoo run. (laughs) You know, really get my blood pumping. She immediately takes him to the hospital because, you know, he's dazed and confused and walking around in his shorts, where they diagnose Frank with infectious hepatitis. He's jaundiced and hallucinating and super agitated, and within two days, he's dead. His oh, cause man. of yeah, t- quick. His cause of death was listed as natural cause causes as a result of infectious hepatitis and he was buried on May twenty seventh, nineteen seventy five. Oh right. So Thus great. ends Frank Hilly. Poor Frank, I'm gonna say it again. Yeah, I like him. He's like like yeah, I feel so bad for him. Now, Marie, meanwhile, collected thirty one thousand dollars from Frank's life insurance company that he had at work. Which in today's dollars is about 150000 Okay, so a decent chunk of change. Yep, yep. And of course, the grieving widow began to spend that pain away. Of course she did. She bought clothes, cars, and jewelry for herself, her mother Lucille, her daughter Carol, her son Mike, and his new wife Terry. All right. But still, Marie, surprise, surprise, was restless and unsatisfied with her life. Of course she was. She would complain to anybody who would listen. Her favorite topics were about how her kids didn't love her, how Carol might even hate her, how her job and her boss were terrible, and of course, about a series of petty thefts that had been occurring at her house since before Frank died. Things would just go missing, and she didn't know why. Oh, okay. I'm very confused now. I would have totally led with the thefts in complaining to my friends and, you know, maybe called the police after a while. Yeah, that would probably be good. When her mother, Lucia, was diagnosed with cancer a few weeks after Frank's death, Marie moved her mother into her house so she could care for her. And by care for her. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, perhaps accelerate her demise. When Mike Hilly got a pastor job nearby, he and his wife moved in with Marie. 
this is a bad scene from the start. Yeah, I would imagine. Marie and Carol are still fighting because Carol's a teenager at this point and she hates her mom. And Marie also is, you know, Mike's her favorite. So he's home again and she's just like demanding time and attention. He's like, mom, I just started a new job. I have a new wife. Like, mm -hmm." And I'm also married to Jesus. So (laughs) got a full plate. Yeah. Then his wife, Terry, starts to suffer from a stomach flu that she just can't kick. I wonder. I wonder. She ends up in the hospital at least four times and also suffers a miscarriage. God. At least this one is a stomach flu and not like heart attack, heart attack, yeah, heart attack. Yeah, it's like stomach flu, ulcers, indigestion. At least that makes a whole lot more sense with poisoning. It does. It does. So unable to handle all of this crazy tension in their living situation, Mike and Terry are like, you know, we got to get out. I don't care. Let's just get an apartment. Yeah. We got to get the hell out of here. Well, that just causes the situation to go from bad to awful. Oh, great. So the day after they move into their new apartment... There's suddenly a mysterious fire at Marie's house. Oh, no. The fire's so bad that Marie, Lucille, and Carol all have to move into Mike and Terry's apartment. Oh, my God. (laughs) While the house is being repaired. So now they've gone from a house with all these crazy people to an apartment. (laughs) Whoa, no. (laughs) Once Marie is able to move back into her house, suddenly the apartment next to Mike and Terry's catches fire. And the couple has to move out and back in with Marie. She crazy girl. Oh my God, Marie. No, you're nuts. (laughs) Finally, after a few more hellish months of family fun, Mike's able to find a new house and they move the hell out permanently. Good. By now it's 1977 and it's just an other awful year for poor Marie. Her mother, Lucille, passes away in January and all kinds of bizarre happenings were occurring at her house. She's regularly calling the police about petty thefts and also small fires being set in the closets. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, this happened not just to Marie, but also her neighbor, Doris Troy, who was close enough friends with Marie to give her a key to her house, you know, just in case anything happened. Oh, my God. Okay. Doris also reported that someone had set small fires in the closets of her house, too. What is wrong with this woman? (laughs) You, Eden, were baffled just as the police were. (laughs) But officers still, you know, came out because, you know, Marie has a reputation about being a little demanding. So they would come and take a report from her every single time. However, after a while, they stopped taking Marie up on the offer of coffee when they would come into the house to take a report after they started getting stomach aches when they left. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. (laughs) This story, Nicole. Wow. Told you it was batshit. Huh. Okay. So in 1978, Terry, Mike, and their new baby moved from Alabama to Florida. And Marie and Carol are like, oh, hey, we can move with you and help you settle in. Or I should say Marie is like that. And she dragged poor Carol along. Oh, great. After a few months in which Marie and Carol continue to fight constantly. And then Marie runs up a $600 debt on Mike's credit card. Mike basically says, Mom, I love you, but you got to get out. And Marie and her daughter move back to Aniston to live with Frank's mother, Carrie. Okay. Well, um, bye-bye, Carrie. I'm just going to say right now, I'm assuming. You are not wrong. <laughs> Once they were back at Aniston, Marie decides, you know what? I should buy life insurance for both of my kids and since, in case anything happens. So she takes out a $25,000 policy for Mike and a $39,000 policy for Carol. Unfortunately, the same old bizarre unexplained events start to plague poor Marie again. Gee, I wonder. Mm-hmm. The phone line at Carrie Hilly's house is mysteriously snipped. Someone sets a small fire in the hall closet. And then poor Carrie begins to experience nausea and indigestion. Oh, my God. <laughs> Please stop. Now, to take her mind off all of her troubles, Marie begins two affairs with two different married men. One was her boss. The other was an old acquaintance who she bilked out of several thousands of dollars by telling him that she needed cancer treatment. Oh, my God, Marie. (laughs) Just no. However, Marie was still unable to convince either man to leave his wife and marry her. Gee, I wonder why. Right? (laughs) (laughs) How'd she convince the first one to marry her? So in spring of 1979, Carol Hilly, her daughter, begins to suffer from serious and painful nausea and vomiting. Oh, my God. She gets sicker and sicker as the months pass, and she begins to experience tingling and numbness in her fingers and toes, too. Great. 
While she still has this very abrasive argumentative relationship with her mom, she kind of starts to rely on her mom more and more for daily care because she just constantly is nauseous and vomiting and, you know, has this numbness in her fingers and toes. She can't really do anything for herself. Yeah. So Marie takes her daughter to several doctors who are all totally stumped by the cause of Carol's illness. So Marie, being a loving mother, takes it upon herself to start injecting her daughter with a medicine to help reduce nausea. Oh, God. <laughs> Arsenic. I'm just like, this is the same medicine that our that husband... That friend. Yeah. It was. How did you know? Because I have a brain in my head. <laughs> so after Carol checks into the local hospital four times in as many months, the doctors are like, Marie, we don't know what's wrong with her. We think it could be something psychosomatic. We recommend that you take her to a psychiatrist in Birmingham to see what's going on with oh, Carol. Oh, God. That's, she's just like, great. All right, she's I'll like, definitely do this. You're right, doctor. Of course. So Carol gets checked into Caraway Methodist Hospital in Birmingham and Marie returns to Anniston. Now, during this time, Marie starts to run low on cash and she starts passing bad checks around town, including one to the insurance company that hold Mike and Carol's life insurance policies. Oh my God. Okay. She's Velma Barfield. A little bit. There are similarities, but I'm going to say she, this is like not even the crazy part of the story. When's she going to overdose on pills? Um, That's my next question. Oh no, Eden. It goes full blown crazy okay so this is nothing yet this is nothing yet oh my god okay so while carol is being treated about a month goes by and the doctors are observing her trying different things they realize she's not suffering from psychosomatic illness but she has malnutrition and vitamin deficiencies and then they also start to realize that her fingernails look a little off and that she might actually have heavy metal poisoning and that's what's causing all of her health problems gee think wow okay surprise Marie, of course, panics after she talks to the doctors who are taking care of Carol and rapidly goes to Birmingham and checks her daughter right out of Caraway Methodist because, you know, Carol's not getting any better and she's been there for a month already. There's way better hospitals that can help her. Of course. Ones that don't know what I'm doing to her. Exactly. I mean, you know, whatever. Exactly. The next day, she checks Carol into the University of Alabama Hospital in Birmingham. Then... On September 20th, 1979, Marie gets arrested for passing bad checks in Aniston. Oh. Uh-oh. While Carol's new doctors are pretty confident as well, based on her symptoms, <sighs> that she's suffering from heavy, heavy metal poisoning, they do some tests. And they find out that Carol indeed is. She has over 100 times the normal amount of arsenic in her body. Oh, my God. They determine, based on the hair sample, that she's probably has been poisoned in the last four to eight months. All right. So basically, in the spring, she started feeling like crap. Exactly. Now, Mike Hilly, after hearing about his sister's diagnosis, writes to the Calhoun County authorities about the rapid decline in death of his father and grandmother because he's concerned about her, his mother, yeah. her spending habits, her financial habits. He thinks that she's mentally unwell and he wants to get her help. The police then remember a weird vial that they found in Carol's purse at the time of her arrest for passing bad checks. And they run some tests on it. And it contains, you guessed it, trace amounts of arsenic. Huh. Really? I never would have guessed that. shocking, right? Later, Frank's sister Frida goes to her mother's house where Marie was living and discovers a jar that contains an arsenic solution that looks very similar to a solution that she saw Marie inject into Carol. Oh, it's the medicine. It's the medicine. She found it. So this prompts authorities to exhume and test Frank Hilly's body. And they also find that he has over 100 times the normal amount of arsenic in his system. Police charge Marie with murder and attempted murder on October 9th, 1979. After this, they also exhume her mother Lucille's body. And they discover that her mother also had about 10 times the normal amount of arsenic in her body. Great. But it was the cancer that eventually killed her. Oh, okay. So, you know, shockingly. And this, I was like, are you for real? Marie? Cancer with an arsenic trace, uh, chaser. Shockingly, Marie was released on bail. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, right? And it's mostly because Mike was like trying, Mike went to the local folks he knew in the community. He was like, my mom's sick. It's not her fault. Yeah. You know, we got to give her the benefit of the doubt. There might be something going on. She needs help. Yeah. He wants to help her. He wants yeah. to be a good son. So I'm like, he's not like just like her, but he just like, he's a very, I think he's a very like sympathetic person who loves his mom and he yeah. wants to like. Do, the, do right by her. So he raises her bail money and gets her out on November 11th. 
Uh, she hires a lawyer who sets her up at a hotel room in Birmingham because Marie's convinced that Frank's family wants revenge and she was terrified for her own safety. Oh my God. And this is where it begins to get batshit. When her lawyers check on her a week later, he discovers that her room is in shambles. Her, okay. her clothes, her suitcase, and her purse are all still there, but her money and other valuables are gone. Great. And so is Marie. Great. Even better. Now, there's a note left on hotel stationery that tries to frame the scene as like a kidnapping. And it says, quote, you led me straight to her. You will hear from me, end quote. Okay, Marie, what are you up to now? Someone walked away too much, Dallas. Yeah, right. That same day, Marie's mother-in-law, Carrie Hilly, dies of cancer in Aniston. Postmortem testing reveals that she also had abnormally high levels of arsenic in her body. So now Marie Hilly is the prime suspect in at least poisonings of four people. Of course. On November 19th, Marie's aunt, Margaret Key, returns home to find her home burglarized. Hmm. The intruder had taken some women's clothes, a suitcase, and the automobile in the driveway. They'd also been delightfully polite enough to leave a note that said that the burglars won't return and not to worry. <laughs> okay. Such a specific thing to take from a house. Ladies yeah. clothes, suitcase. Yeah. So from there, Marie's trail totally goes cold. Back in Aniston, the case against her continues to gain momentum. They're turning up like tons of stories. Like people who like had gone to dinner at their house or come over and Marie had offered them like lemonade and afterwards they vomit or they feel sick. And okay, so there's just like a bunch of shit coming out yeah, now. So it turns out like for fucking years when she was pissed off at people, she would just dose them with arsenic. Oh my God. And that included like neighborhood kids. Like, oh, can your friends like go play outside? Well, here? yeah, they were po- she was poisoning the friends like mm-hmm. of the kids. Like fam- other family members also had like similar complaints. Even police, like I mentioned the police officers too, yeah. which is crazy. They actually end up like exhuming the body of uh, one of Carol's friends who died when she was 11 just to test to see if Marie killed her. Wow. It turns out, no, but still. I'm like, that is crazy. Yeah. Meanwhile, while Marie's on the lam, she travels to Florida and finds a job using the name Robbie Hannon. In February of 1980, she starts dating 33-year-old John Holman. Marie tells Holman all about Robbie's troubled past. She grew up in a wealthy family from Texas that she doesn't really speak to. Well, except for her twin sister, Terry. But she also tragically lost her two children in a car accident not long ago. Oh. Now, this guy, John Homan, he's kind of shy and awkward. And he's just gotten out of a really bad marriage. And he kind of grew up with an alcoholic mom who died early. So he's very susceptible to Marie's sob story. Yeah. And he believes her. They start dating. Things get really serious. They move in together. And then they get married in May of 1981. Okay. She starts using his last name. So she's going by Robbie Holman. Then in October, they relocate to Marlowe, New Hampshire. Marie soon finds a customer service job at a company called Central Screw Corporation. Some people are going to get centrally screwed by her, I'm sure. (laughs) Both, you you know, both ways. You are not wrong. Well, some of the coworkers at Central Screw found her pushy and abrasive, as always. Most of them would listen pretty sympathetically to Marie's sad tales of her dead children and her, like, Dallas-inspired wealthy upbringing and her very close relationship with her twin, Terry, who did not exist. Who does not exist, Mm -hmm. because Terry was the wife's name of her son. Yes, that's super creepy, right? Yeah. Marie also talks a lot about how she's in really poor health. She gets headaches a lot and she tires easily. Eventually, she explains that this is all being caused by a very rare blood disease that she has where her body produces too many red blood cells and that she's been fighting this for years. Okay. She starts taking trips by herself, leaving home and at home in New Hampshire because she has to go see specialists for a cure for her blood disease. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Awesome. In early 1982... Marie begins to talk more and more about her twin sister, Terry, even going so far as to lock herself in like an office at work so she can make phone calls to her sister because Terry is having marriage problems and needed her twin. Yeah. Then things got even more crazy and soap opera-ish. Okay, let's hear it. Marie, as Robbie, flies to Florida, bleaches her hair, and gets a temp jab as Terry. Oh my God, she's her own twin. Oh my God. (laughs) Wow. Then, on November 10th, 
Marie calls Holman as Terry and tells him that Robbie died in Texas and that her body had been donated to science. Oh, here I thought like she was going to go home and be like, like a Patty Duke. Hi, I'm Terry. It's like, oh, well, where's Robbie? Hold on just a minute. <laughs> I think I saw her over there. That would have been amazing. But alas, no, she's going to fake her own death and then be her own twin. Oh, my God. So like Holman is like heartbroken, but he like accepts this Terry woman's offer to fly to New Hampshire to help settle Robbie's affairs. Oh my God. Okay. So when Marie arrives in New Hampshire as Terry a few days later, John Holman doesn't recognize her. She's dyed her hair blonde and she's lost 20 pounds in the six weeks she's been gone. Oh my, how do you lose 20 pounds in six weeks? Cigarettes and vodka. (laughs) I guess. (laughs) So Marie insists that she and Holman should probably move in together so they can help each other get over Robbie's death. So together they visit Robbie's coworkers at Central Screw where quote unquote Terry tells them all the wonderful things her sister told them about her while she was staying with her to get treatment. Wow. She even tearfully asks to see Robbie's desk and sit in her chair. Okay. Yeah, I'm just going to leave that there. Yeah. Soon after, Marie settles in as Terry, and she gets a job in Battleboro, Vermont, and the couple decide it's time to put an obituary in the local newspaper for Robbie. And it's that obituary that struck her old co-workers at Central Screw as odd. Now... Robbie's former boss begins checking into the details of the obituaries just based on some of the gossip he's heard around the office. Yeah. He finds out that the church where Robbie's services were supposedly held doesn't exist. Great. He, At least pick a real... Well, I mean, then you'd need to... Okay. Yeah. I there, don't know. There's ways around it, but yeah. He also finds out that the research hospital where her body was supposedly donated also does not exist. Great. He's already suspicious of this woman claiming to be Terry, so he contacts the local police. The police are also, surprise, unable to verify any of the info in Robbie's obituary, even her existence. Yeah. And they begin to suspect the woman living with John Holman as Terry could actually be a woman wanted in New England for a recent bank robbery. Not recent. Marie, and other fugitives. Oh, okay. I was they about to say, Marie robbed fugitive. a bank? Okay. No, that would be the cherry on top of this crazy pie. But yeah. <laughs> no, they, they, missed it. they think she could be this other fugitive they're looking for. So the police bring her in for questioning. And as soon as she gets in there and they ask her, what's your name? She tells them, my name is Marie Hilly and that I'm wanting, I'm wanted in Alabama for passing bad checks. I'm not the woman you're looking for. These are not the droids you're looking for. This is not the crazy blonde lady you're looking for. Exactly. When the police are like, oh, okay, and they do some more checking, they find out she's wanted for murder and attempted murder charges. She's quickly sent back to Alabama for trial. At trial, prosecutors present a mountain of evidence against Marie that include testimony from both of her kids and lots of neighbors and friends. She's convicted by a jury in less than three hours and sentenced to life life in prison for the murder of Frank Hilly and 20 years for poisoning Carol. She starts her prison sentence in 1983 at Tutwiler State Women's Prison in Wetemka, Alabama. Hey, that's the, um, Mm -hmm. yeah, okay. That's That's the same prison as last time. John Holman, meanwhile, moves from New Hampshire to Alabama to be close to her. He actually moves to Aniston. Okay. Now, she's a model prisoner, and by 1985, she gets deemed a minimum security risk and is eligible for a day pass away from the prison due to her good behavior. First mistake, guys. Mm -hmm. First freaking mistake, because now she's Cordelia. Now, surprisingly, Marie always returns promptly from these day trips. So she's like, you know, coming back when she should, that sort of thing. By 1987, this cumulative good behavior makes Marie eligible for three-day furlough passes. Okay. On February 19th, 1987, Marie leaves... Your birthday. (laughs) I was going to say, I'm like, that's a familiar date. Marie leaves Tutwiler Prison for the last time. Oh. Mm Mm-hmm. She spends the weekend in an Aniston hotel room with Holman. On Sunday morning, before she has to go back to prison, she tells him, I really want to visit my mom and dad's graves. Um, Why don't you go to this local diner and I'll meet you there by 10? He says, okay, I'll see you there. She never shows up. Holman, after waiting an hour for Marie, calls the police. As you should. So the police assume, based on Marie's crazy-ass flight history, that she's probably fled the state. So for four cold, rainy, unseasonably chilly February days, police search the area and send Marie's information across the police wire to nearby states. Then, on the morning of February 26th, police are called to a house near Marie's old childhood home on Blue Mountain. A homeowner has found a muddy and delirious woman huddled on the front porch, suffering from hypothermia in the 30-degree rainy weather. Oh, shit. Hello, Marie. Hi, Marie. 
hey, girl, you don't look so fancy now. Or Robbie or Terry or whoever she's being this week. Well, the crazy thing is because she was near her hometown, like the people knew that this was Marie Hill. Oh, they, they recognized her. And they're like, she doesn't look anything like she used to. She looks sad and terrible. Like she doesn't even oh, look wow. like a human. Like she's just covered in mud. She's really ragged. She's like, you know, I guess when they found her, like she was in like very badly suffering from hypothermia like her body temperature was like 81 degrees it was insane so they call an ambulance and marie is rushed to a local hospital for treatment but suffers a heart attack en route and is declared dead on arrival oh shit she was 53 years old two days later on february 28th she was buried next to frank hilly in aniston oh great the end that my god Right? It's so batshit. I'm like, I have to tell you this whole story. Otherwise, it's not quite... You don't appreciate the scope of batshit. Crazy. That's, that's true. This story was nuts. And I just... Oh, God. Like, I know I know terrible, self-centered, toxic people. But I've, I've never come across something not only so toxic, but like so crazy with the soap opera. You combined points from like Velma Barfield mm-hmm. and points from Cordelia, whatever her last Lockin. name was. Yeah. And then also storylines from freaking days of our lives all my children whatever you know isn't that crazy yeah so hence why it was an amazing judith light made for tv movie i am assuming (laughs) yeah i'm gonna have to check this movie out now so my sources were wikipedia encyclopedia britannica encyclopedia of alabama apnews.com the orlando sentinel oxygen.com crimelibrary.com and the book poisoned blood by philip e ginsburg very nice All right. Break from the crazy, right? Yeah, we definitely need a break after that. Uh, But we will be back. Hey Hey guys, guys, Eden and Nicole here. here. We wanted to let you know about the second annual Pocono Witches Festival, where Roadside Horror Show will be having their very first live show. Come join us at Slippery Rock Resort in Lake Harmony, Pennsylvania, for a spooky yet funny show in a haunted location. You can experience all the beauty of Lake Harmony while getting your spooky on with several events. Hosted by our friend, the Pocono Witch, E. Massey. Enjoy a spooktacular event that's the third largest of its kind in the tri-state area. Take in a seance with medium Glenda Dawson. Or enjoy a paranormal investigation with Mark Keyes from TV's Paranormal 911 and Virginia Rose Centrillo from TV's The Haunted. Hungry? We've got you covered with a psychic breakfast. And you can finish it all up with a masquerade ball and maybe take part in a Samhain ritual. You can also enjoy a special guest presenter, author Christopher Penzek, as well as a live concert with Metamorph. It's all happening October 23rd to October 25th at beautiful Split Rock Resort. All of those are ticketed events, but will be at the Magical Market on Saturday, October 24th, which is completely free and open to the public. You can find nearly 100 unique vendors with all their own goodies. And of course, you'll get get to to see see us us for free. free. So come down to the Split Rock Resort and show us some love. Tickets are available now at PoconoWitchesFestival.com, where you can also find more information about the events. That's PoconoWitchesFestival.com. Come tell us your stories and listen as we tell a few of our own at our very first ever live show. Until then, guys, creep creep on creeping on. And we're back. We're back. Um, I got a story for you. I'm excited. And it's a little different, so I think it'll be fun. Awesome. My story for this week takes place in Camden, Alabama, which I hope is a lot nicer and much safer than Camden, New Jersey. (laughs) One can hope. (laughs) Yes. Oh, and speaking of Camden, New Jersey, we're hearing sirens coming around. Um, Beautiful summer sounds. (laughs) Fireworks and sirens. Oh, exactly. That's pretty much what I hear in my neighborhood every night. Mm -hmm. It is the county seat of Wilcox County, and yet it's not very large. Although, according to Wikipedia, it's the largest in the county. So, so the whole county is probably pretty small, I guess. Gotcha. Uh, it has an area of 4.20 square miles, which leads me to believe that they must smoke a lot of weed there. <laughs> Why does that lead you to believe that? 420. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it also has a population of 2,020. The town started out as a property that was donated by Thomas Dunn, a man from Georgia, in 1833, strictly to establish a county seat for Wilcox County. The house, which is the oldest in the city, still stands today. If someone tells you to take a hike, you can absolutely do that in Camden, (laughs) as it is home to the Roland Cooper State Park. If you prefer to get your arts and crafts on, you can visit the Black Belt Treasures Cultural Arts Center, 
where you can check out work by local artists or even make something of your own. If you're hungry, you can stop by the Gaines Ridge Dinner Club for some excellent food. It's also a place to go if you're hungry for a haunting, as it's also the subject of today's story. Ooh. So I saw a picture of this place, and I said, that is a beautiful old building who doesn't love a good haunted southern plantation. Then I noticed it was a restaurant and was even happier because I don't believe we've ever done a haunted restaurant on this show. I don't think so. I think we've touched, like, chatted about them, but I don't think we've actually ever covered one. Yeah, I don't think so. Unless it was, like, an in with a restaurant, but, yeah, nothing that's just a restaurant. Yeah. I know they exist since we have one not too far from my house, but we just haven't covered them before. Anyway, the place was built in the late 1820s before Camden was even a place. It was the only two-story building between two early settlements in the area that were 50 miles apart. Dang. Yeah, so there's a lot of nothing out there. It's this plantation-style white L-shaped home down a long gravel drive. It's just really nice-looking both inside and out. Sounds gorgeous. It's not really known who built the house or exactly when it was built. The guess of somewhere in the late 1820s comes from the style of architecture, which predates the Greek revival style that you see in the 1840s and 1850s. Okay. It was known as the Hearn Place, as it was owned by Reverend Ebenezer Hearn and his family. Interesting. That's a great name, Ebenezer Hearn. I know. Well, they spelled it wrong in the one... um, source that i had so it was ebenezer (laughs) but you know besides being a methodist reverend he was also a soldier in the war of 1812 (laughs) the family of the current owner betty Gaines kennedy bought the home in 1898 and it was betty and her sister hayden who turned it into the Gaines ridge dinner club in 1985 anyone else just get that annoying bowling for soup song stuck in their head (laughs) i know i did (laughs) The name of the restaurant comes from what the Gaines family named the home when they acquired it, Gaines Ridge. Okay. If that name sounds familiar to you, it it might if you're a history nut. They are related to George Struther Gaines and General Edmund Pendleton Gaines, who captured Aaron Burr and McIntosh Bluffs. And Fort Gaines in Mobile Bay is named after them. Oh, cool. The family lived in the home for generations until a little after the end of World War II, where they still owned the home but decided to rent it out instead of live there. Eventually, like most places in our stories, the house ended up sitting vacant for a while and started to fall into disrepair. So in 1985, Betty and Hayden decided they wanted to do something with it and decided to fix it up and start a restaurant on the property. Cool. Unfortunately, they had no restaurant experience, and most people didn't think they'd make it past six months because of this, but they're still open today, so they're doing something, right? That's awesome. Ladies doing it for themselves. Yes. Betty wanted to preserve her family's home while combining it with her love of food, so she's a woman after my own heart. It's known for its no-frills, no-fussy fine dining. Basically, That's the best kind of fine dining. Exactly. Basically, it has good food without all the weird fancy ingredients that the average person just doesn't want anyway. For instance, I do not want fucking truffles in my mac and cheese. Why is that a thing? Just stop doing it, please. (laughs) It's usually not even truffles. It's like truffle oil, which is just like gross. Yeah, it's disgusting. Like my my, bite of my mushrooms. Oh, this smells terrible. (laughs) From what I gather, the vibe in the restaurant is very much home style. Although there is plenty of kitchen staff, Betty does work alongside them, usually manning, or should I say womaning, the grill. (laughs) She says that she cooks for people the same way she cooks for her family, which I think is really cool. And if I ever find myself in Camden, I'm definitely eating here. For sure. Inside, everything is very cozy and it feels more like a home than a restaurant. There are a lot of antiques and a big china hutch. They also do a lot of catering at the restaurant, including both in-house parties or wherever you'd want to have your event. They do everything from weddings to baby showers to funerals. As one of the staff said, we birth you and we bury you. (laughs) I think that's pretty great. They need that on a business card. I know, right? They are quite famous for their desserts and have a black bottom pie, which is a southern staple, that was featured in the Alabama Tourism Department's 100 Alabama Dishes to Eat Before You Die list. I've never had a black bottom pie. They're good. They're very good. What makes the bottom bottom black? Uh, chocolate. Uh-oh. Yeah. On the lookout now. Yeah. It can either be like 
regular chocolate or it could be like a chocolate pudding. Like mm. people do it different ways. Cool. But it's very good. Uh, so maybe that's why they have ghosts. Some of them didn't get to eat it before they died and they just stuck around so they could get a piece of pie. I mean, hey man, do what you got to do for pie. I mean, I would do that. With black bottom pie, you can pretty much use whatever crust you want. I've seen plenty with graham cracker crusts or chocolate crusts. But here they use a ginger snap crust, according to my source, which sounds really good. That does sound delicious. Dang it, Eden, I want dessert. I know. They also offer fresh rolls with your meal and are known for having amazing steak and seafood. You get two different types of fries to choose from as well. You can either have the traditional American French fries. Mm -hmm. Or you can have their dinner fries, which are thinly cut slices of potato, which are almost like chips, but a little thicker. Cool. This was a weird one for me because I found a lot more sources for the haunting side of things than I did for the history side of things. Usually, and I don't know if it works the same way for you too, Nicole, but I always find fewer things about the hauntings when I do my research. Yeah, I always find the rich history and then like the hauntings are like kind of the little... Two seconds. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wait, what? So this place is full of activity and is, according to one of our favorite sources, only in your state, the most haunted restaurant in Alabama. It's off the beaten path, which already gives it a creepy feel. With being an old plantation, you already get those vibes before knowing anything about the ghosts. And having it farther off the road as well always just gives that ominous feeling. Yeah. There's a weird, mysterious fog that sometimes is seen on the property. I'm not sure if it's inside or outside or what. But Mysterious Fog. That kind of sounds awesome, actually. It kind of (laughs) does. Unless you're in a Stephen King novel, then not so much. It's not so cool. There's the ghost of a woman who can be seen floating by the windows and sometimes even screams. She's wearing period clothing. That's terrifying. Yeah, we don't want that one. There's also the sound of a baby crying that can be heard. People have looked around before and there's like no baby in sight, but they just hear this crying. Sometimes the house will smell like pipe tobacco, even though no one is smoking. Hmm. And I really hope that it's one of those flavored aromatic pipe tobaccos. Yeah, for Um, sure. I had a friend who took up pipe smoking because he thought he'd look cool. (laughs) And he bought this um, chocolate chip cookie tobacco. And whenever he would smoke the pipe, it would smell like someone had freshly baked cookies. It was kind of wonderful. Yeah. My grandfather always smoked uh, like a cherry type tobacco. Yeah. Yeah. That's a big favorite for pipe smokers. Mm Mm-hmm. Some people speculate that this next one is the ghost of Ebenezer Hearn himself. Uh, People have reported seeing the spirit of a tall man with a beard dressed in all black, which, if he's wearing the typical reverend attire, would fit. Yeah, sounds pretty dead on for a rev. Absolutely. People have reported the sound of screaming as well, which may or may not be that of the first floating ghost that I mentioned. Mm -hmm. The screaming lady. Yes, that's what we will call her. Lady screams a lot. Betty Kennedy herself has experienced a lot of paranormal activity here, which instead of calling them ghost stories, she calls them ghost truths, which I find hilarious and endearing. Oh, Betty. I, I Yeah, I like this lady. I know, me too. <laughs> She's a sweet little old lady, very Southern. I like her a lot. So one night when the place was closed, and I believe she was there with only one other member of the kitchen staff. She said she was preparing for a party the next day and needed a pot from upstairs. She went to get the pot and she hears the kitchen staff lady, whose name that she said on the video that I watched, but I couldn't make out what the name was. Mm -hmm. She hears her scream and shout, Miss Betty, Miss Betty, come quick. Oh, Lordy Jesus. Yeah. Oh, my. Yeah. Um, And those are the exact words. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So she drops the pot and she runs downstairs as quick as she can. But the staff member is just chopping onions and she says, Miss Betty, that wasn't me who called you. <gasps> That's super spooky. Yeah. Like throwing of the voices and mimicry. I don't, I don't like really, that either. That's, that's, that's really like, unsettling. That's a dick move. Yeah, that's very unsettling. <laughs> Not cool. No. Ghost truth. <laughs> um, they were both a little unsettled by this, obviously, and began looking around the house, finding nothing. And Betty says that they should go upstairs and check. And the staff person working told her that she did not want to go upstairs. And Betty was like, well, I'm not going up there myself. (laughs) So they both went up, still couldn't find anyone. After that, they both pretty much said, screw this. We're getting out of here Mm -hmm. and left for the night, deciding to finish up everything in the morning. Sense a bull. Exactly. Another night while they were open. 
Her daughter was also working that night, and she says that something always happens when her daughter is there. So I assume her daughter probably has some psychic juice that she just doesn't know about. Yeah, some kind of energy. So Betty's in the kitchen when her daughter comes in and tells her that she needs to come out there quick because someone fell in the women's bathroom. There was actually a little bit of a crowd forming outside the bathroom that had formed from the commotion. They tried to open the door but couldn't, so they assumed that the woman fell against the door. They didn't see it happen, but they heard her fall and saw the door shake. Hmm. She finally manages to get the door open, and there is no one inside at all, and nothing has been disturbed. What? Yep. These are tricksters. It's very strange. I'm also going to note here that there's only one way in or out of that bathroom, and there were people by it the entire time since they heard someone fall. So there's no way that someone could have gotten in and gotten out. Yeah. It's certainly an interesting place, and the ghosts don't seem like they mean any harm, really. It's just they're kind of tricksters. Gotcha. Uh, As long as they stay away from my black bottom pie, it's all good. (laughs) No ghostly fingerprints in my pop. Yeah, right. So um, would you grab a bite to eat here, Nicole? Uh, Abs are freaking lootly. Yes. Maybe not when Betty's daughter's working, but... (laughs) Exactly. It it sounds really lovely, and your description of the food sounds like something that's totally up my alley. Um, But maybe wouldn't want to, like, host a late-night event there. Yeah, probably not. I feel like it's a a good brunch spot. It absolutely is. I would agree with that. Mm -hmm. And it's off the beaten path, so, like, a lot of people, they still get a lot of business. But mm-hmm. it's like, it's not really a town that you'd go to to like do, do stuff. stuff. You yeah. would stay outside the town, probably in a bigger city that is nearby. Yeah. And like drive out there just for dinner or just something. Just for food. Yeah. That's cool. That's cool. Yeah. I would totally go there. Yeah. My sources for this week were Wikipedia, ruralswalabama.org, alabamapioneers.com, alabamaliving.coop, al.com, wilcoxwebworks.com. AlabamaHauntedHouses.com, OnlyInYourState.com, and HauntedPlaces.org. Very nice. Yeah, I thought it was a fun little thing. I just yeah, wanted to... It was actually to... a delightful haunting that yeah. wasn't that terrifying. It was almost very pranky, you know? Yes. So it's almost like maybe they're like children's spirits because yeah. kids yeah. like to play jokes. Or maybe Reverend Ebenezer was very jokey in his time. He Who knows? Pull maybe. A, good, a fast one on people. He could. Scaring for Jesus. Scaring for the Lord. <laughs> All right. Um, so I guess that's the end of our show for today. If you guys like what you heard or you have any questions about what you heard, you can reach out to us. Uh, you can email us at roadsidehorrorshow at gmail.com. You can also find us on social media at Roadside Horror Show for Facebook and Instagram or on Twitter at Roadside Horror. You can stop by our website, uh, roadsidehorrorshow.podbean.com. We'd also like to thank... Yox Rocks Designs for our amazing logo and E. Massey for our intro and outro music. Until next week, Roadsters. Creep on, creeping on. Creepin on. on.